Hello and welcome to another episode of Casting Views, the uncle and nephew hosted podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Lou. Where we pick a subject each week and, well, we cast views. Clever title there. So <laughs> <laughs> spent so much on the marketing budget. <laughs> yeah. So we have got another guest this week, but before we do, we will play a promo first from some friends of ours, and you'll know them if you've been listening the last couple of weeks. It's the Sugarcoated Murder, the sisters from the Sugarcoated Murder, Karen and Anne. If you haven't heard the episode yet that where we hosted them, please do. It's um, You have to listen to it to believe it, I think. Let's, let's just say <laughs> that. So, so we'll hear from them now. Hey, Ann Barner. Hey, Karen Devaney. We need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar-coated murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people, we will talk about you. All right, cool. And we're back. So... Lou, I was a bit worried about you today because we've got, well, firstly, let's say hi to Antonio. Hi, Antonio from the cult work. Hello. Hello, everybody. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. <laughs> last time we did the link up, you broke your elbow, didn't you? Maybe? Yeah. So I was unfortunately indisposed, um, like an accident and emergency um, when we were supposed to be doing the podcast. And um, Antonio did say to me, he goes, can you make sure Lou doesn't do anything, any sort of, you know, extreme sports or anything today? So see that's the thing do you know why as well it was terrible because it wasn't any extreme sports i just fell over in a restaurant <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't have to say that you could have said you yeah, were skateboarding i, I could have done so. yeah i know but it's, i don't know if it's more or less embarrassing but you know well i think it made for a very interesting episode with me and dan because not having like the millennial in the group it was kind of like two old men yelling at clouds <laughs> but it made for an interesting conversation <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we we didn't have the the young perspective bringing the the, the average age down. Um, well, the only thing this week is I've got I've still got COVID kicking me about the floor, so I might yeah. I'm I'm, ten, I'm prone to a bit of brain fog. So you might have to virtually nudge me at some point if I start glazing over. No offense to either of you. It's, it's, now, is is it's that the COVID. COVID or is that the age? I don't know. <laughs> like if it looks like he's dozing off, Lou, I'll <laughs> yeah. give you a signal. Close your ears and I'll shout really loudly into the mic to wake him up. Well, I've got some I've got some new headphones for tonight, so that will do it. And um, it's actually quite lucky. I'm, Luke, can I blame you for the time difference, even though it's my fault getting the yeah. time difference wrong? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, you I'm, glad, I'm glad I, I got the time wrong because these headphones weren't delivered. If, if we'd have started on time, they weren't delivered in time. So Amazon got them j- just in just before we started tonight. So, so yeah, so Antonio, got you on the show because we kind of want to talk. It's going to be probably the loosest subject we've had, but we kind of wanted to talk about film and the film industry. But so we thought, what better to have you on with your podcast? Well, podcasts. I don't know how you're managing to keep two going at the moment. Oh, neither do I, guys. Honestly. <laughs> so, do you want to give it? Do you want to give people, uh, if there is the, the odd person that hasn't heard your podcast, do you want to just give us a rundown of your 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 shows? Well, hopefully, if you guys have a loyal fan base, they should know my podcast because you played an episode of it last week. <laughs> That's very true, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, I have the Cultworthy podcast, which is a podcast that focuses on highlighting obscure cinema and cult classics kind of trying to like give them new audiences these obscure films diamonds in the rough or films that just have been forgotten about or passed over giving audiences an opportunity to find them and it's i feel even more relevant now with what we're going to talk about today on on this episode 
that podcasts like mine or blogs like mine exist, not necessarily not necessarily just mine. There are a lot of them. And I'm even discovering more and more of them right now. And I think it's really important. And we'll get into that later. And then my other podcast is called The Cult Worthy Classic, which is a deep dive podcast where I bring on a guest every week and we deep dive into a cult worthy classic film made before 1970. So I did that because I feel those older films that really kind of paved the way for cult cinema or even like modern cinema that's taking a lot of cult cinema aspects and trying to like put it into the MCU and to Disney films, giving them the respect they deserve and having more of a deep dive and not just kind of bunching them into like a review episode with movies like Friday the 13th or Chopping Mall or something like that. So it kind of gives them their own their own platform, so to speak. And, and yeah, so far, both are just doing better and better every week. Uh, I have had Dan on the Cult Worthy <laughs> podcast, and that <laughs> was one of our most popular episodes because it kind of broke the mold of like where we started talking about social issues and how it affects, you know, cinema, specifically censorship. Mm. And it kind of got away from the whole of like, this is me talking about four movies at a time. And it really kind of got me more comfortable bringing more guests on. and. Now I feel these days I have more guested episodes than I do review episodes, which is something of a change for me. And it all kind of started with you, Mr. Dan. Oh, look at that. Uh, (laughs) Any commission of future future earnings then, yeah. (laughs) Um, But actually, I I was going to ask you, though, and something I I I did mean to ask is, what what was it particularly with like these cult classes? Is, Is it something that you've always had an interest in rather than... Not, not that you're not interested in the modern film, but is there something that draws you to these forgotten classics? Um, okay, I can kind of answer that on two levels. So my main uh, career is I am a, I'm a chef. I'm a culinary director for a fine food market here in the States. And I've been an executive chef and a corporate chef. And when you go to culinary school, they don't teach you how to be great. They teach you the basics. You learn how to make all the basic sauces, all the basic cuts of vegetables and fruits and all the product ID. You need to know the basics before you can put your own creativity and flair on something and make it your own. So the whole idea of me being passionate about these obscure films or older films or classic films is because they are the base ingredients for a lot of things that people enjoy today. And they deserve more recognition. They deserve uh, to be highlighted and dug out of this obscurity that a lot of them have been. And with the advent of streaming, because we'll talk about this too, physical media is kind of going away. People are yeah. really relying on streaming. And, and there's a lot of just content put out there that really buries a lot of this older stuff. It's important to kind of get that out there and so many of my listeners, let's say they liked a particular movie that they grew up with. And then I cover an episode that has three other movies that are like it that were either maybe the basis for it or inspiration for that filmmaker to make that movie. And now my listeners can see the blueprint of where these older films that may not have had the financial success or the critical success, but have a longer standing place in you know, cinematic history. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what that was the driving force. Plus, when I was an only child, a latchkey kid with cable, I watched a lot of movies <laughs> when I was a kid. And 
movies that some people never even believed me when I said, oh, there's this movie about a kid who loses all his hair and he gets this peanut butter solution that makes him grow hair. That's a real movie. People didn't believe me. And now it's showing up on podcasts and social media. So yeah, like people like me who were nerds about movies back then now have these podcasts and blogs that get these films out and now they're culturally relevant 40 years later, you know? Actually, Lou, I've got a question for you, but before we do, that's linked to this. Um, and that is what I do love about your podcast is, like, I think you hit the nail on the head, you will find films that either we've forgotten or we didn't know about. So I, I remember messaging you a couple of times, this was months ago, I think, when we first started interacting. I think, was it... Um, was it Four Rooms? I think you did an episode on Four Rooms. Yeah, that was during the New Year's episodes. Yeah, and I remember I'd completely forgotten I'd seen that film. But then, yeah, hearing your review kind of brought it it's sort of flooding back. So I think, yeah, there is an element of rediscovering films that we've probably forgotten in our in our childhood. But, Lou, what I would put to you is... Okay, there's not that much of an age gap between us, right? No, no, it's not, it's, it's not humongous. You know, it's it's noticeable, but it's not humongous. But, but you, in, in <laughs> your age or your generation, right? Is there is there a, like an appetite, or or do people sort of watch these older films? Like, say, what did you say, Antonio? For one of them, pre the seventies, your classic one. Did you say? Yeah. So anything made before nineteen seventy, and the reason why I picked nineteen seventy is you're starting to get out of the kind of grindhouse theater, drive-in theater, and uh, repertory theater, like theaters that would play the same films on the weekends. Now you're getting into the advent of like people being able to actually buy physical media, whether it was 16 or 8 millimeter reels to play at home, or just a few years after VHS and beta. And I feel that's kind of like a, a turning point in how films were appreciated and screened and shared. Yeah. So, so Lou, I kind of look at you as uh, the Netflix generation kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, okay, I've got Netflix, Prime, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, kind of what's your view on that? Like these quotes, air quotes, classic films. That was Lou. for Lou, right? Yeah. Sorry, I thought that was... I'm, I'm... <laughs> You see, this generation, they're just tension span of... <laughs> no, well, do you know what it was? Is Funnily enough, I had this discussion at work um, with a couple of people because I, I think, was probably exposed to films that were evidently not of my generation and, and much, much earlier. So when I look at what my mum and my dad used to watch, I know that my mum has always loved the film Gone with the Wind. I think if you asked anybody that I work with now, they'd never be able to tell you anything. I think that in reality... To me, the Godfather, the first Godfather is probably the earliest thing that anyone my generation would have probably considered watching only because of the reputation of the film in and of itself. I think anything earlier than that is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Um, That was 40s, I believe. Um, I don't think anybody that I've spoken to, and even with things like The Godfather, the huge like blockbuster classics, I think some people my generation just have got no no concept of of ever seeing it. An old time yeah. black and white film comes on, it'd be skip, skip. Past yeah, yeah. Show, I think, I, I think that's what it is. To be honest with you, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much even stuff from like the eighties. Like you know, I've, I've spoken to my <laughs> girlfriend <laughs> about films from the eighties. Like, have you ever seen Back to the Future? Huge film, obviously. When you look yeah, at it yeah. again, super, super iconic. No, no idea. And I'm like, wow. I just, I don't know what it was, but I think I'm more open to watching something for the first time 
just because I've seen it on or do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm a little bit yeah. more open with that. Whereas I feel now, and I think it's to do with the way that we consume film now. So we look at Netflix and I feel like we talked about this in a previous episode. How many times do you scroll and then just watch something because you've already seen it because you know, mm. it's an easy watch and it's something comfortable to watch as opposed to dabbling your feet in something that you've is, is number one, potentially black and white that you're not going to, not going to kind of. Well, well, do you know what I spent half hour doing today on my Amazon prime was unticking everything I'd put in my watch list that I hadn't watched and is now not included in Prime <laughs> because <laughs> I hadn't got around to watching it and then re-adding a load of stuff which I know in three months I still won't have seen it yeah and 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 Antonio I think yeah this hits on, on what you're saying and we we kind of we mentioned it in our episode last week with Sean Louis about music kind of it's the fact that streaming now gives people the ability to put content out there which is great but is it burying everything from a certain time before you know are we getting a deluge now and it makes it that much harder to maybe find select content or, or older content i think there's so many people now and there's so much content out there that people just need to start i think being responsible for being their own antenna for things that they want to attract because i think if there's one thing that that hollywood has learned the hard way, even pre-pandemic, is that their marketing systems are archaic. They are outdated. And in my opinion, they're highly offensive. Like we're still dealing with the major studios marketing their films using racial uh, demographics and cost and class demographics and uh on one of my episodes a few weeks ago and, and on my website, I kind of went off about some of these studios doing what they're calling, um, they're, they're, they're pricing movies, the cost of a movie to see in the theater based on uh, the popularity yes, yeah. of the film yeah. and where the theater is located. So if you're in a urban area that has vastly different uh, demographics when it comes to income, they're still charging like an extra two or three dollars more to see the Batman or the new MCU movie than any other, you know, first run release of that week. And that is just, I think, insulting to the movie going public because now you are putting out a clear message that you are marketing your film to people of means. Mm. So I thought that they would be a little bit more open and understanding to try and get more people in the theater. And, you know, people with money will say, but it's only two or three dollars. You're not costing people out. You know, for some people, that two or three dollars is like a meal they're not going to get that week. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I feel that the marketing has kind of gone backwards with that. On the same note, when we're talking about streaming, Netflix, I think, is probably the, the worst thing that's happened in the last two or three years to entertainment. Now, I think it was revolutionary 20 years ago when it started doing mail DVDs. Like I was one of the first people on board <laughs> yeah. with Netflix. I mean, I stopped going to Blockbuster. I stopped going to Redbox. I was like Netflix all the way. And then when they started streaming films, yeah, I'm brilliant, amazing. I think where they started getting into trouble, in my opinion, is when they started creating content. Because at first it was films and series, and now they're just creating noise. Mm. Like there mm. is so much content that they are just, putting money and resources and time into not for any other reason, but to out shout the other streaming networks. Yeah. You know, they're distracting you with content and a lot of it's not any good. 
yeah, but they're yeah, getting yeah. A-list talent, A-list directors, A-list producers, and they have the money to buy like these licenses to things that other people could probably do better with just to get it on their platform so you don't go to Prime, so you don't go to Disney+. Plus. And I think it's crashing their their model, honestly. Yeah, Lou, he mentioned Blockbuster. That was a physical Netflix. Look, I, I, re- I went to Blockbuster <laughs> with my mum. I remember having to put the DVD back in that box so she didn't get fined the two quid or whatever it was. DVD I was VHS. Yeah. yeah, it was like, you kind of rewind, man. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the thing about Netflix is absolutely right. I would rather they use their money or our money on keeping, getting the good, the good programs in their license. Because like I said, they're spending so much money on these, these originals that aren't necessarily always doing well. And now we've seen in the recent news that they've, they've taken a bit of a hit and they're looking at like introducing advertising models, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And is that come at the cost because they're investing so much money mm-hmm. Because I tell you what, if they're going to start showing adverts, then I might as well watch our terrestrial TV. Because the whole, the whole reason I, you know, you kind of do that is because it's ad free. You're, you're paying that premium. But do you know what it is as well? I mean, to be honest, I, I haven't enjoyed. I don't think I've ever enjoyed a Netflix original. What was the the film that was huge? Was it Bird Box that was the Netflix? Yeah, that's um, the one you've yeah. got your beef with. Yeah. I've really, I've really got a problem with that film because I hate that film. I don't think it was a good. <laughs> I don't think it was a good film. It wasn't a good film, and the story was weak. Machine Gun Kelly was in it, which is another downside. Um, but it's true. All of a sudden, it garnered so much hype. And I think it was more like a social media hype as opposed to, is this film actually good filmmaking? Is it good cinema? The answer is no. It -hmm. just wasn't. But again, I'm guilty of watching it because I got involved in that hype, came out of it thinking I'm never going to get that hour and a half of my life back. But yeah, I I just think that that, that what's been putting out, it's true. It's just quantity as opposed to quality by virtue of the fact that when you've got millions and millions of hours of things to watch you just continuously scroll and i think that's what the whole netflix model is based on it's just mindless scrolling to keep you on the platform well even more than that there's something a little bit even more disturbing is that it's also a lack of accountability and a a lack of failure you know when when you are making a film for theatrical release that'll eventually go to streaming and social media you are relying on a return on your investment dollar based on how many people you can fit in that theater, then how many people can you get to rent that that film once it hits physical media or streaming? Like they do that early access now where it's like 20 bucks to rent yeah. for like a month and then it goes down. Like you have this accountability and you have this idea of failure where like you have to create the best product you can because all your money comes up front. And then it'll trickle down eventually with these repeat rentals and stuff down the ways. When you are creating product for streaming, specifically Netflix, you don't worry about an opening weekend. You don't worry yeah. about um, a rental fee for, for a DVD or a Blu-ray. You really just set it and forget it. And that is the problem with that streaming model specifically for Netflix. There is no accountability for loss in those films. No one's getting fired if a Netflix film or a Netflix series doesn't do well because they're right, already yeah. creating the next one after it. So I think that is where like the irresponsibility and lack of respect for the entertainment model really hits with Netflix. And think about it as podcasters, you know, we put a podcast out and most of our listens come in the first week, maybe two. After that, we're not getting any listens 20 episodes ago. 
No one cares. No one remembers. You might see one pop up. Now, take that model with Netflix, and let's say they put out maybe a 1,000 new shows a month, which is very plausible. If you think of all the shows they have times the episodes they have, do you really think that they expect people to go back and watch whatever they put out two years ago, three years ago? I mean, maybe if it in the pandemic, for sure, people were like finding a comfort yeah, show and yeah. watching it over and over again. But I mean, you can go back into the catalog of what Netflix made 10 years ago, and I doubt anyone's watching it. It really is just a bombardment of content. Yeah, I mean, kind of in, in my house, we use these streaming mainly to catch up on things. Like, like I, I say, I've mentioned before, we don't tend to watch a huge amount of TV live. And so we will sort of watch a show and my, my partner, she'll repeat watch it because it's on in the background. Whereas when I finish work or, or, or now not podcasting, I, I'm kind of into my video game as well. So I like to spend time on that. But at the moment, we are just kind of watching stuff that the, the originals, are, I, I think the only one we've watched recently, and now we've been burnt by that, is it Space Force that Netflix are doing? They've cancelled it now. Yeah. And this is another reason why we don't like to watch new stuff is because we keep getting burnt by the fact that it cancelled because a lot of the networks and now services don't want to take a risk on anything because it is all about the numbers. It doesn't matter if it's got, you know, pun not intent or pun intended, a cult following for that mm-hmm. show. The fact is, if it's not making certain numbers, it's not viable. So I'll just can it. And so that's why I don't feel like I can get invested in new new shows. I like watching ones from about five years ago because I know I've got mm-hmm. a complete series or complete sort of five or six seasons. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I think Space Force is just one. I think I saw an article this week saying that across them all, there's been about nine or ten shows cancelled in the last week. And it's just, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's also partially the reason as to why my recent series that I've only just gone back to rewatch because I've seen it before is Lost because I know that all the episodes are there. I know that it's never going to get sacked off. And I know that in reality, it's a great show that I'm probably going to enjoy all the way through to the end. And so that's the thing. I I think it's true what you say about being able to be invested in something, especially when it comes to streaming platforms, because it's just so much of a risk as to whether or not you're going to be able to watch it in a month's time or whether or not, like you say, it's, it's just going to be canned. And I think video games have it hit it right on the nail. Like, you know, they take their time. They put out a good product because we've all seen them like rush maybe new versions of our new license out. And there are no there are no um, fans more critical than video game fans, in my opinion, whether it's PC or console. I mean, we are now what, nine years removed from the last Grand Theft Auto game without a clear idea of when the next one is. But we all know that when it comes out, it's going to be probably the biggest game ever like the last one was. We're, for the most part, okay with that because we know someone is investing time, money, and passion into a project and not just trying to throw something out there to try and get as many hits its first couple weeks and then just have it go away and be ready for the next one. Like I really respect that model for sure. But if we focus on films now specifically, how are you viewing films nowadays? Do you think, well, the, I mean, the pandemic obviously has had an effect because we're seeing things come directly to to film. But do you think we are seeing a change or a lowering of kind of quality output in terms of films? And, and, and do you think... The, the movie theatre isn't going to go anywhere for a while, let's say that, but do you... 
uh, I, I don't know how it is in America. You know, has is it taking a hit there because of COVID? And and now with streaming services almost doing sort of like we said, I think you can already now hire the Batman. I think on on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime. Do you think film is going to start taking a back seat because people know they can just wait a few weeks and and and, and stream it? I think the pandemic definitely didn't help anything, especially when uh, Warner Brothers and HBO started doing that release the week of the theatrical release on the same time as HBO. They did it with Dune. They did it with The Matrix. They did it with a lot of movies, actually. What I feel the film industry created its own issues far before the pandemic, in my opinion. Like, it all kind of really started, I'd say, in the early to mid-2000s with the Star Wars movies coming out, the Harry Potter movies coming out, and then like Disney Pixar movies coming out. Because what you started seeing is you started seeing these large intellectual properties start playing on like five or six screens of a 10-screen multiplex. So you were seeing these big intellectual properties bumping out independent films or you know everyone says the romantic comedy has died yeah it was those films that killed it because they knew they wouldn't get an opening weekend as big as a star wars movie and the fact that they staggered them like okay we're gonna have star wars in the summer harry potter in the winter it just kind of destroyed the typical dynamic of when you would release a film because now it was all based on these intellectual properties at the same time theater attendance started to kind of wane so theaters especially in the States, you used to have a theater that would sit like maybe 150 to 300 people in the little chairs that everyone kind of sat next to each other. So in order to attract more audience members more frequently, they started converting to like these loungers or luxury seats. And now an average theater seats between 75 and 100. So they immediately cut their seating capacity in half. And now you're playing that same movie on five or six screens and bumping smaller films. They created their own demise themselves by not being as flexible with how they could deal with theaters. But at the same time, the industry has these set rules where like, you have to play Star Wars for six weeks. Well, if you're in a small town, everyone's going to see Star Wars the first week. So now you're going to have five weeks of minimal attendance when you could have been playing other first run films but you can't because you signed a contract with Disney for Star Wars. It's it's this kind of mentality that's going to collapse the theater industry in my opinion. It's not the films. You know, so what my little podcast kind of becomes more relevant now is that films coming out by especially companies like A24 and Neon, films like The Witch and Hereditary, Midsummer, Lighthouse, the new one that just came out um Everything, everywhere, all at once, I, oh, yeah, I think yeah, is what yeah. it's called. Yeah. These films are getting huge, huge recognition on social media. People are loving these films. People are are becoming almost cult dependent on these studios making them. But good luck trying to find a screening of it that's not at midnight because you've got the latest MCU movie out or you've got the latest... Uh, Dumbledore movie out taking up all the screenings and that's how it is here especially in cities that are very family based they're going to put all those films in the most desirable time slots and then you can only watch these more obscure films at like 9.30pm and midnight yeah and they've also kind of like here Lou haven't they like the, the main one near us 
you know they they they've converted a number of screens. You've got the the ones that are dedicated three D, then you've got the ones yeah. that are dedicated four DX, and then the ones that are the the IMAX. So they're all kind of it's starting to what's the word? It's starting to almost confuse matters about when you want to book a film. It isn't just as straightforward as say, right, I want to see Spider Man here. It's like, well, which version of Spider Man do you want to see, and how much extra are you going to pay for it? Um, going to visit your bank manager to see yeah. if you get remortgaged because the tickets are getting so expensive. Yeah. But the thing is, as well, with with respect to the um, cinema attendances um, and theatre attendances, sorry, um, I think as well when you look at contracts being signed so that films need to play comparatively to the way it used to be do you think as well because films like the marvel films like the harry potter films like star wars when they come out i know people that are fans of those films and then go on to see them three or four times Mm -hmm. in the cinemas so i feel like it's almost like they've created the monopoly and they've created a fan base which is so invested that they're willing to go out and so it's almost justifying the screen time that they're taking almost. I mean, I don't like that, obviously, but I feel like that n- I would have never have done that. I would never go to a cinema and then watch a film again two weeks later. But I feel like the things like the MCU have created such a, a dedicated following that people are willing to turn around and say, right, I've seen it once. I'm going to go see it again and I'm going to see it with a new set of friends or, or and that sort of thing. So I don't know if that's kind of feed, feeds into a little bit of the problem as well. I mean, I think so, but, you know... It's really interesting to me that like in the 80s and the 90s and even the early 2000s, nobody cared about fanboy culture. Everyone just thought it was like this toxic thing that no one really wanted to invest money into. I mean, think about 1989's Batman. Every Batman fan in the world was losing their shit because they cast Michael Keaton. I remember seeing like on the news station, people being like, I'm never going to watch this movie. You can't cast Beetlejuice as Batman, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Then he goes on to be probably the most important and prolific Batman ever on screen. And that film changed the way that intellectual properties, especially superhero movies, were made. Like, they they saw this happen in, in the 80s and 90s, but now I feel like, especially Disney and its handling of the MCU, it is all reliant on fanboy culture, yeah. you know, yeah. to the point where, I mean, my mom, she she likes Spider-Man. She likes superheroes. But the last couple, you know, Avengers movies are so deeply involved in multiple characters and storylines that required you to see the other films to understand that she was just lost. So you do lose a little bit of an audience that way. And it, it, it's kind of, you know, cannibalistic in a sense where these films are reliant on the success of the previous one and when you release a bad one like i hear a lot of people are not very happy with this doctor strange movie although it sounds like something i would enjoy because i like sam raimi and i like the the dark and disturbing things i'm hearing about it but they are so reliant on success because they keep creating this never-ending cycle of like the snake eating its own tail that if something happens and one either fails critically or financially, it kind of screws up their whole model. So that's why I feel their model is fragile, especially since they really kind of shot all their 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 resources and talent on that you know phase one, phase two, phase three that ended with Avengers Endgame. Like, yeah. how can you ever top that cast? How can you ever top that story and the quality of that production? I I, I have a hard time imagining they can. It's it's funny, yeah, because um, I mean, you can ask Lou. I'm I'm a I'm a huge kind of like comic fan, and and Mar- I love the Marvel films, and 
I actually said coming out of um, Endgame, I actually said to myself, I think I'm marveled out. And I didn't don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but I was I, I it's like you said, that was a culmination of ten years of really good interwoven storylines, some really good performances, a good cast. And I was thinking it should end there. Because like I think like you were intimating, they can't really afford to take too many risks now. Because like you, I'd heard a lot of mixed things about Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like they were trying... Like I said, I'm trying to stay spoiler-free, but it sounds like they're trying to do something slightly different or give it a different vibe, and people didn't like that. But I've got a friend of mine who's seen it, and he said he loved it. He thought it was great. And he loved mm-hmm. the fact that they were trying to do something different. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, are they becoming a prisoner of their own success now? Because people just want that... What, what do they call it? The cookie-cutter film. They, they just want that same Marvel set-piece, you know... Arc at the, the the hero's arc where he's got to have a downfall and then rise up at the end. It's it's yeah. You, you just I don't want to rinse and repeat of the first three phases. Well, and that's why I think the Star Wars sequels from the last ten years have so much hate because they they really just recycled everything from the original trilogy, mm. but poorly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and the one that got the most hate at first was the the second one the um. Was it the last? Not the last Jedi. What was it called? The one that um, Force Unleashed. Rise was... of Skywalker was. So it was the last, last Jedi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people hated that one the most because it did try to take a little bit of a different turn than the formula was. Yet they were somehow forgiving of Rogue One and even the Solo movie a little bit. But because they weren't part of like a trilogy, I think mm. that is why they got a little bit of a pass. And as we've seen now, Disney has kind of struck gold with these series, the Mandalorian and now Obi-Wan's coming out. They're doing really well. And I actually really enjoy them Mm. because they're letting us play in the Star Wars sandbox without like, you know, pissing on the the actual trilogies and the actual Skywalker storyline. And in my opinion, put this put Skywalker to bed. There's so much more out there. Yeah in the Star Wars universe that's interesting and fascinating, and I think Mandalorian proved that. It's almost like the fear, isn't it, that we need to have something of the original to make sure we get the fan base there, but then right. they've become too reliant on that. Sorry, actually, I was going to go back to, to you, Lou, and, you know, without wanting to make you the, oh, you're the young person, let's get the young perspective on this. <laughs> is, cin- is cinema a thing for you? Do you go to cinema, or is it like a destination date for you at all or do you know what when i was younger i would say yes there were certain films and sets of films that i would if they came out i would go to the cinema and that's where i had to watch them famously one that we always used to go with a group of friends i watched every single um paranormal activity film (laughs) at the cinema (laughs) loved those films they were just one of those ones we were all young obviously still at school at the time and i feel like they were a good laugh to go with uni mates i think the last time i went to see to the cinema though was to see the first it film the remake that came out um, with scars guard um and i think that's the last time i went to the cinema but for me now i feel like i have to either be invested in a director or invested in a particular franchise so oh no sorry i lied i went and saw the latest spider-man film 
I went with my sister. Okay. okay and that was yeah. the last one. But then before that, it would have been it. Um, but again, because I quite like um, the Marvel films, I knew that the hype around um, Spider-Man was was huge as well. And my sister wanted to go. So I, I just I kind of tagged along. <laughs> good brother. Good um, brother. But, but yeah, I mean, yeah, right. the film that came out, I think I ended up missing. And I think it came out beginning of pandemic that I would have gone to a scene in the cinema was The Gentleman. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was Guy Ritchie. And that's, again, probably only by virtue of the fact that I love Guy Ritchie's films. I think they're brilliant. Um, but it's because I've got an investment in him as a director um, that I would have gone to have seen that. But yeah, I think in terms of films coming out, I think because streaming platforms now are just so commonplace and easy, I feel like it's one of those things where you turn around and say, oh, wait three months, it'll be on Netflix or Prime or you rent it at home, that sort of thing. I feel like now it's it's just less of a thing that I would, would choose to kind of actively do, I guess, which is sad because the day at cinema is actually quite a fun thing. Well, well um, this is what I was going to say. It was like, I remember when I was young and, and, you know, and by that I put like when I was at college as well in uni, you would get a group of mates and you would go see a film. Like I remember seeing the matrix, the first matrix when it came out, when it went with a friend and being blown away by that. And I think that's what's carried on, carried over with me is I tend now, I think I will generally only watch, films at the cinema that I think need to be watched on a big screen like the Marvel films or that that big blockbuster that that spectacle and I think part of it is cost I I don't know Antonio in the states how much you know a a movie ticket is here but Lou was it was it it's about 12 to 14 pounds isn't it for a yeah standard... i think so the the big kind of chains i think that's pretty standard you can get the, the one that i would go to is a little bit of a smaller cinema um and you probably pay about nine pounds i think for a ticket as standard but they don't do anything fancy it's literally just the film in standard you don't get any imax yeah. or anything like that mm-hmm. um but sorry just linking back to the point that you said about just empty um theaters as well because when we went to watch spider-man i think this was probably a couple of weeks after release and we're not really from a particularly big place with with lots of people living here. And the smaller cinema that we went to probably did fit about 150, the screen that we were in. And if I'm being honest, I would probably say that overestimating there was maybe 25 to 30 people in that screen to watch Spider-Man. And this was probably mm-hmm. only two weeks out after release as well, because I was actually really quite surprised. I thought, everybody has been talking about this. Why is this place not not packed and I understand maybe COVID a little bit of skepticism about going to the cinema still but yeah it was just really surprising to me because when I was young I feel like I even watched um, the Purge films to me were things that again with your mates we would go and watch because they were just a bit of a laugh together but I remember being in the cinema watching Purge films and it was literally shoulder to shoulder the cinemas yeah. were absolutely yeah. packed um, and I just feel like you would never ever get that now now it's a case of oh where do you want to sit because there's 150 seats available um and, and you don't really have an issue with it but but yeah well like i said cost does have a, a thing for me mainly because i'm thinking if it's not like a top tier film or like a spectacle i'm like well i can either spend close to 30 pounds going to see it now with with my other half or or like i said i can rent it when it comes to prime for half that and watch it at home and i know that's a terrible thing I think it does sort of matter nowadays, I think. You know, I, th- I think it has become a, a, a thing. You know, I think the cost just does feel... I don't necessarily think the experience has improved any of going to the cinema, but the the, the price has definitely rocketed up. And, and the cinemas now, they're just... Uh, basically, I think the film's secondary. I think they're just an excuse to try shovel all the, the, 
the, the concession, the snacks, uh, yeah. the hot dogs, uh, the Baskin Robbins. I think we've got ours, haven't we? Uh, the pick and mix on the wall. It's just an excuse <laughs> to, to, to sell the sweets and the food. Well, and it's really when we talk about the entertainment industry as a business, I mean, we have to remember that the music industry is is the same way. Like, it's so hard to have an industry based on artistic integrity and talent and trying to put a dollar sign on it and trying to get like a return on it. Because think about how many just talented musicians or even like artists when it comes to like painting and sculpture, you you don't know how to put a dollar sign on something when you just hear it in a group of four or five people. You have to wait until like the world hears it or a larger amount of people to see how relevant it's going to be either socially or in, in a marketing aspect. And films are the kind of the same way. So, you know, independent films that get greenlit and financed with a small budget, but can make an impact and bring in lots of money without very little investment. That was kind of like the thorn in the side of the studios, especially in the 90s when companies like Miramax and and New Line Cinema were making these low-budget films. It really kind of kicked off with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street being like the first real horror film that kind of just started packing them into theaters and then owning the, the video marketplace. Then you have companies that are like, putting out these big budget action films or big budget period pieces, the returns could sometimes almost be the same, but you know, one would be a massive success because its budget was low while the other one looks successful on paper. But at the end of the day, it might even show a loss. I remember when the Harry Potters came out in like the, the, the mid to late two thousands before they finished the series. I remember reading somewhere that like the fifth and sixth entry of the Harry Potter series actually lost money in the books even though they were massive successes now that all really has to do with you know accounting tomfoolery to you know kind of get your your budgets in line and not have to pay unions and actors residuals like that's that's kind of where that comes from but just because you see like a a b behind a number that you know made a billion dollars doesn't mean that it was actually successful in the long run because that money might have already far been spent and again, that's where the artistic integrity of, of filmmaking, it's an art, it's, it's a creative medium, is easily manipulated and screwed over by the marketing and the corporations behind it who are really just treating the film as a product and you as just a basic consumer, you know? But that's how, it, it's again, it's that whole Ouroboros thing, snake eating its own tail. One doesn't exist without the other. Like you can't have entertainment without having this kind of manipulation of the marketing and and the distribution. It, it, it's a never ending cycle. Streaming kind of threw a wrench in the gears because now people can spend five, six bucks a month and get these things streamed. And when it comes to like my show, where I think streaming is a blessing, is that all of these cult films or obscure films that were doomed to a life of like bargain bin VHS or midnight showings on cable now have an audience because yeah. they are available everywhere, whether it's YouTube, Tubi, Shutter, you know, and Netflix is probably the worst. Netflix is so up its own ass with distributing its own content <laughs> that there's stuff that people don't even want to watch anymore. 
And that's why they're struggling. That's where like, oh my God, we need commercials because people are watching all the good stuff on these cheap uh, streaming services with ads. They don't care about the ads because they're seeing movies they haven't seen in 30 years and thought they'd never see again, you know? Yeah, and, and, and something I was going to say is in the modern day, how easy is it if you are like either an independent film or a lower budget film to get your film made or plugged in, in the theatres or by the, the big companies? So, for example, you absolutely know the next rock film is going to have the dollars thrown at it. <laughs> yeah, Something Lou and I, we've mentioned on our films in our pod before, like the um, the Fast and Furious. I've just got into watching <laughs> that. Uh, now, you know, they're not, I'm not going to say they're the best films, as a, as someone who's old school likes to see an entertainment, you know, it, it, it scratches an itch. But you know, that next one, I think they're making number 10 now, is going to have the money thrown at it for the, for the mm-hmm. cars and budget. You know, Michael Bay, he just wants to spend all those million dollars on blowing stuff up. You know, a lot of people say the plot's secondary. If you've got a decent film that you want to be made, I'm wondering, is it harder to get that financing without potentially the streaming services nowadays? Are they helping in that side of things i think that what you're seeing is you're seeing uh, a generation of filmmakers you know mostly millennials and, and now gen z's kind of tapping into that as well see when, when i was trying to get into filmmaking back in you know the late 90s early 2000s because i'm like that borderline gen xer into millennial like i was born in 81 so i'm kind of like in that little lost area between the two generations we were still dealing with film like, if you wanted to make a movie, you had to use actual film. Digital did not exist. So once that became a more commonplace, even in like the big budget films are shooting digital, like all the Avengers movies are shot digitally. It's a much more practical medium. Like, I'm not going to say less expensive, but it's more practical. You can now make a, a decent looking film on your iPhone. People are doing it. Yeah. Like, think about what your iPhone looks like compared to what, like, the highest end prosumer video camera from, like, the late 90s looked like. It's, forget about it. There's no, there's no comparison. So it's easier to, I think, get acknowledged. The problem is, like, we talked about just the, the mass of content out there, whether it's on YouTube or people doing Instagrams and Reels. Like, there's a lot of talent out there because they have the tools now. So that's where kind of like learning how to market yourself and expose your, your, your talent to people who can get you onto a streaming app. You know, there's a filmmaker I respect a lot. His name is Ty West, and he does these horror films. Most of his films went straight to either video or to streaming and got a cult following there. And then this last year, he released a film called X, which is about a, a group of people shooting a, a porno in a farmhouse in the 70s, and it turns into a slasher movie, and it's got <laughs> rave reviews, it's made a lot of money, but this was a guy that was able to get his earlier work seen on streaming apps, and then built an audience that would actually go see a film of his in the theater. And like I talked about, it's hard to find films like that in the theater these days, R-rated, you know? So good luck trying to find it on a Wednesday night in mm. small town America when you've got Harry Potter playing and you got Spider-Man playing, but it's out there. I think people just have to learn how to define what success is based off something other than money. Like we are a capital capitalistic society here in the States. Everything's always been based on what you bring in dollar wise. I, I think now people are starting to appreciate the fact that clout and respect 
and critical response. I mean, we have Rotten Tomatoes, which has both a critical aggregator and an audience aggregator. And okay. a lot of people care more about the audience now than they do the critic because back in the day, New York Times or whatever, you would read the reviews of the films and that might be your make or break to whether or not you're gonna go see that film in the theater. Now you're listening to your friend Bob at work or looking what the audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes. And if the audience is having more fun in that theater and they're rating it high, that's kind of like your clue to like, this is gonna be a good time if I see it with an audience that feels the same way I do about these movies. Not what, you know, Mr. So-and-so from the New York Times says. Again, I think it's the, the, the industries and the media corporations don't know how to read their audience anymore. Like we, we are an audience that we've kind of built this cohesive parallel thought with each other of like what we're going to like. And I, I see more success in that, even though it doesn't show up in dollar signs, you know? With reviews, I think most movie reviewers now, the official ones, I just read their reviews and think, are they just jaded that they've seen so many or ha are they feeling like they have to say the most controversial thing about it to, mm -hmm. to stand out? With audience one, though, I, I do worry about like the review bombing. Like, you know, like you said, oh, my God, they've cast what's his name as Batman Pattinson now. So, Pattinson, yeah. yeah, so we're going to give it a low score. Um I do generally try to ask people I know who've seen it, so if Lou's gone to see it or, or people at work. Like you said, I think I trust the people I know around me to give an honest view. It's definitely an interesting thing in in that respect. Yeah. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> what about you, Lou? What, what affects you in, in your decisions to go choose a film, whether it's... I mean, because these days, time is... I mean, time's always been money, but I feel these days, time is even more valuable than it used to be. So yeah. even if you're watching something technically for, for free or for on the cheap on a streaming network, you are now like delegating time to that and you're putting value on your time when you're choosing something to watch. It, it, that's at least what I do. How about you guys? Yeah, that's the thing. I think as well, you mentioned um, something about the slasher film that you mentioned as well, which was... Um a much smaller film because I've got a British one that I really remember really loving but I think that's what it is I think it's now just a case of what do I think of people when they turn around and review a film in reality the only reason I went to see Spider-Man with my sister was because well, I was partially interested in going and seeing it but it was just rave reviews from everyone that spoke about it I didn't see mm -hmm. anybody that didn't enjoy that film and so as a result again it was me turning around and saying you know what I can sit in this cinema for two hours and 20 minutes, however long that film was, and I know that I'm going to come out and probably be awestruck at, at what I've seen. I think it's difficult, though, um, because I feel like I don't get to see as much unique film as I used to. So with the slasher film, there was a film called F. Again, never really heard anybody ever speak of it. And it was based in a British school, was the, the plot. And it was basically a slasher film, all because a teacher had given them bad grades. I thought it was a brilliant film, really, obviously, very, very graphic. Um, but again, I've never seen anything like that come up. Even when we look at stuff that comes across, even on like when you look at Sky Movies and that sort of thing here, I don't see anything that isn't just super mainstream that is already been thrown at us at cinemas and then already been hyped up on social media because again even when you look at, at tv channels i think here i could probably go on sky movies and look at the premiere channel and i could see the joker playing six times over the course of the next three days and in reality would i like to see something more unique like f 
in that mm-hmm. in that slot would i like to see something that i've not seen before yeah probably but but that's the thing i feel like it's just all yeah it's just a bit corrupt in the way that everything's kind of targeted to pull a, the cast the widest net possible in my mind yeah that's what i was trying to say and going back to to Antonio, what you were saying about it being a, a, a numbers game, are, are people less willing to take a risk now? Because, like I said, unless it's the next rock vehicle, and, and I like the rock, but if it's the next mm-hmm. rock vehicle or it's the next, you know, iteration number five of this franchise, they know that that's going to pull the people in. Well, I do remember at the beginning of the pandemic seeing a really good tweet about The Rock and it turned around and said that COVID has has kind of already set the precedent for what The Rock's next film will be. It'll be him being some sort of scientific researcher curing COVID whilst also simultaneously fighting terrorists. And in reality, whilst it's ridiculous, you can see it. You can see it happening because you're just like, you know what? That would pull hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, we're seeing a lot more theatre attendance right now. You know, I I went and saw the new Jackass movie. That was the first film I saw since before the pandemic. And it was a perfect film to to break my theater cycle. However, two days after I did get COVID. So there was a little (laughs) there was a little bit of guilt there, you know, but I, I, I think that theaters aren't going anywhere. But what I would be cautionary of as someone in the movie theater industry is don't build more. Like, yeah. don't don't take a risk on this sudden uptick in attendance as a sign of like theaters are back, baby. Let's let's let it sit a while. Let's be responsible with what our investments already are and with what our commodities already are. We've already got buildings. We've already got concessions. Let's let's play it safe and see how it turns out, because it could turn around again. Who knows? It's such a it's such a weird time right now that, and even if it did turn around and come back again, you're going to have a bunch of people who figure, well, you know what? The first two years of pandemic really weren't that bad for me, so I'm just going to pretend like it never happened. You're going to get that into play now with your with your dynamic of business. I, I think we are such a a species of instant gratification. We have that with our cell phones. We have to have a new cell phone every year. And if it doesn't, you know, get to the link that we click within two seconds, we lose our minds. Like we're that way with our entertainment too. We want our movies now. We want them fast. And then we get upset if they're not good. Well, they're not good because we made them fast. You know, that's, that's the whole, again, the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail mentality. Actually, you've just, thank you. Remind me when I lost, I was going to say when I lost the plot earlier, when I lost the track, I, you reminded me now. Is attention span another thing? Because now, I'll be honest as well, I'll put my hand up, I'll admit it. If I'm watching a film or a show at home, I'll be checking my phone every sort of 15 minutes or so, which is why I love going to a cinema because I put my phone away, I turn yeah. it off, and I'm just glued. But around me, so many people aren't, and they're constantly checking their phone. So are we? is there an attention deficit now that we aren't, used to sitting down for two and a half, three hours and, and just glued on a film. But, but do you know what it was as well? Was it The Irishman that came out? And that was like a three and a half hour long epic, I think. Yeah, yeah. I You would be so hard pressed. If, if I said to anybody that I knew, again, I, I don't know if this is an age thing. I've watched The Irishman. I actually really quite like The Irishman, to be fair. It was all yeah, right. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you, if, you, if you asked me to ask any of my friends or my girlfriends to turn around and say, we're going to sit down for three and a half hours to watch a film now, 
if I'm being honest, I've always loved films that have had a bit of historical input, have been based around a historical event. So to me, in my mind, I've always thought one of the best films I've ever watched was Schindler's List. I think mm-hmm. it's a masterpiece. But it's, I think, nearly it's three and a bit hours long, I think, that film. Yeah. I would be hard-pressed, I think, to get my girlfriend to sit down with me and watch it. Even though it is a beautiful masterpiece of a film, I would love her to sit down and watch it with me. I feel like there's just no... There's, there's again, it's the attention thing. It's can I really invest three and a half hours in this because am I going to be bored 20 minutes in? When in actual fact, by the time you get to the end of that film, it is an experience in and of itself. And I think, yeah, that's what the problem is. You look you look at even cinemas now and it's true. I went to watch Spider-Man and people are on their phones and, and you know, you, you can't sit down and watch a film, for instance, you know, whether it be with family mm-hmm. or friends without somebody turning around and being like, oh, I've checked Instagram or this is boring because I'm not invested with the first 10 minutes of this. Yeah, this film. And I feel there's been a lack of a film that can almost be a slow burner that takes you into the story. Like when you look at the Marvel films, I feel like they're quite hot from the get go almost. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what's kind of been lost is kind of slow, beautiful filmmaking. So for me, Schindler's List, absolutely brilliant. The Pianist, absolutely love that film. Really long films, but it takes you putting the time in to be able to get something back out. I, I love slow burn films. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're my favorite give me a film that builds up to a crescendo you know that builds builds its story up and and i'm in and actually i sort of giving it the casting views treatment you know we're talking about prices going up i think i've said before but i would gladly p- pay more on a ticket for a variety of reasons i would pay a little bit extra for a ticket if it meant you had to hand your phones in at the at the door so it's a nobody you knew nobody could have their phones I would pay more for a ticket as well if it meant people couldn't talk or eat through it, which I know is a bit is a bit controversial. But there are some films like, you know, not all of them, like a, a big sort of sci-fi blaster, you know, fill your boots. But there are some films where I can't remember what film it was, but the people next to me were just talking the whole way through it. and But not necessarily, you know... If something amazing happens, like in um, Endgame, there are a couple of scenes where the whole cinema broke out, even, even over here, and it's yeah. unusual for a British cinema to do that. And that's absolutely fine, right? Because that's in the moment. But when they're talking about what, yeah, what they're going to do later that night, or they're just chatting about random stuff, it's like, no, give it. I'll, I'll pay that two pound premium <laughs> for, you, for for you not to do that. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they need to get rid of all the seats and put people in individual booths to enjoy films. Maybe, maybe. But the <laughs> other the other thing is, do you know what it is as well here? And, and Antonio, I don't know in, in the States. I have to, I love sitting down at the time the film starts, but the film doesn't start then. So if you've got a 1pm time on your slot, you're going to get 10 minutes of adverts normal more. adverts yeah more. well yeah then you're being, get... you're being you're being you're <laughs> being oh, generous he is very now. conservative with that <laughs> estimate all right let's say let's say 10 minutes for now then you get 10 minutes of trailers and then you sit back in your seat because you think the film's going to start but no you get another sort of 10 minutes of adverts again for local things even for the cinema i'm sitting in <laughs> i know I you don't need to, to advertise yourself to me because i'm in Rage your cinema as if they're going to advertise and like, as if cineworld is advertising um what's the other one it, 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 yeah, Odeon yeah, of you yeah, or... Odeon, yeah. Oh, <laughs> god this is the worst advert is that so one? you know <laughs> I, I i probably pay a little bit more to not see any of that yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with you. And this is where, like, I've got a controversial view on how I think things are going to roll out in the next 10 years when it comes to this. You are getting 
and, and it's funny because like if I would have been talking about this 10 years ago, people would have called me like a hipster making everything old new again. <laughs> I think that you are getting a generation or even multiple generations so tired of the mass marketing of these films and the mass marketing approach, like you said, with these ads. I mean, there's ads in the theater that say, you know, put your phones away. And then there's a Coca-Cola ad. Text Coca-Cola to 37572. <laughs> like, you know, like you just told me to put my goddamn phone away. There, there, in my community, there is something called boutique label physical media. So there are these boutique labels that popped up about 10 years ago and then more and more coming up. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome, Kino Lorber, Arrow Video. There's a bunch of them now. Severin Films. And what they have done is they have taken the rights for probably very cheap to all of these obscure cult movies, movies that would be playing at midnight back in the day or were like the cheapest rental at the video store. And people now, especially older millennials and Gen Xers, are like, oh, I remember these movies. I remember the Critters films. I remember all these films from the 80s. And they're giving them these 4K or Blu-ray restorations, putting them in a very, very nice box with a new cover art, and they're charging 30, 40, 50, or more dollars for them. I mean, and just to kind of prove, I'm going to show you that around. I got six more shelves like that. <laughs> I am one of those people that fall for this nonsense because I'm an appreciator and I'm a collector. And these labels are just booming right and it's bringing recognition to all these old films that were probably doomed to be forgotten there are these really kind of small boutique theaters that are popping up in major cities there's one in new york city called metrograph there's a few in chicago i forget what they're called and they are bringing back the traditional theatrical experience smaller theaters but with better 4k restorations of films and a focus on films that are important not just mass marketed okay. and they're becoming so popular and they're expanding that i think in 10 years you're going to actually have two separate industries of theater you're going to have these more boutique ones that might cost you a little bit more but they are really about the experience of the film and the experience of watching a film with people of the like mind of you and what you want in that theater going experience. And then you're going to have your traditional movie theater. That's just, here's your commercials. Here's your popcorn. Here's your $20 soda. Go watch a Spider-Man. Mm, yeah. yeah. And I think there's going to be markets for both. I, I think if they learn how to live together in like a, a mutual beneficial way where they're not trying to cannibalize off each other, I think it's best for everyone as a as a creative artist and it's best for everyone as an audience member. But again, the only thing that's really going to screw that up is capitalism. Mm. If like one can outmarket the other and outspend the other and try and shut it down instead of trying to find a world where both can exist. I, I think you've got enough people these days that are willing to fight for what they really want. And, and spend their money more wisely. And I, I think that is what's going to eventually happen. But that's the optimistic me thinking. You know, there is that part of me that's like, nope, that's never going to happen. I, I think the trouble with that 
idea and I, I i'm with you that'd be a great idea i think the problem would be like the boutique one would start doing well and then it would be bought out and then those shareholders that those owners would want to make it more what's the word more mass market and then yeah you repeat the cycle um, yeah so i said the only thing i can screw up is capitalism you mentioned about those um, physical media. I, I'm I'm exactly the same. So Lou's got a, a penchant for football shirts. I've got a, a, a thing for collecting vinyl box sets. Now, the thing that I'm kind of glad we don't have it over here because I think that would probably financially ruin me. Is you've got? Is it the Criterion Collection in the states as well? I hear a lot about yeah. that. Is that is that similar thing where they they do like a package of an older? older They're film? like the OG. Um, appreciators of boutique film like they started back in like the 80s they really blew up when Laserdisc came out like Criterion Laserdiscs that was the brand that introduced the audio commentary of a director or a Mm -hmm, writer mm -hmm. or having director's cuts or or scenes like before DVD hit Laserdisc was it was and Criterion was the one that really rode that horse and was like the blueprint for all boutique labels to come and it still does a great job. You know, it's converted almost all of its DVD library to Blu-ray and is still releasing new ones. And it had no choice to become a little bit more competitive in, in the market and lowering its prices because it used to be known for being very expensive. And it still can be, but it's it's well worth the the few dollars that they've knocked off the prices to compete with these other boutique labels. Now, yeah, so you can watch Criterion films in the UK if you have a multi-region player. For example, I have a multi-region Blu-ray player. I buy a lot of import Blu-rays that aren't available here in the States from you guys. Like Arrow Video is is mostly a UK company, and so I buy Region B Blu-rays from Arrow so I can watch things here. Uh, There is also Indicator. That's another label that you guys have that's amazing. And then Australia has one called Imprint. So a real, I, I think a real savvy boutique blu-ray collector like myself will look for the best version they can find that's available at time invest that money into a multi-region blu-ray player and have a good collection now what some people don't realize is that when let's say one of your labels out there releases a brand new version of a movie or one of mine releases over here what we're probably doing is just trading the rights for the materials of both versions so what might be on Kino Lorber over here in the States or Criterion, all they've done is purchase the rights of that bonus material from Indicator from you guys and put it on here. So I have like two or three versions of the same movie that has all the same materials because they just share, which is actually a good thing. Like, I think that they should be sharing. You know, why are we trying to out- outdo each other when there's already great material out there that we can just, you know, f- get around the weird custom situations and right situations of, of these different regions and make it mutually beneficial for everybody. Actually, you reminded me of something there. Look, firstly, yeah, I didn't realize we had a couple of labels here that would, would want to be of interest to import to the States. It's always the other way around, isn't it? We always want to import everything here. Look, when it comes to physical media, were, were you one to always look at all the extras? Because I'll admit, I was an extra junkie. I used to love watching all the all the extras you got, or like the, the commentary, the, the behind the scenes. Is that something you were into or? probably not to be honest it was never something no it was never something that i got into and i was never particularly interested in if i'm honest i know that that's probably sinful now in the no, conversation I think with it, two yeah. people that i'm looking on screen but, no again i was just yeah. wondering if it's a um if it is a generational thing because 
we did used to have to get DVDs and and and, and take correct me if I'm wrong or Blu-rays. They would package in. You would often get the single disc or a two disc or three disc. You'd go for that one. Whereas now, you stream a film, you don't necessarily get the extras, and I don't think it's a thing anymore. It's not. Um, I don't want to say a culture. It's not. Um, what's the word I'm trying to say? It's not. It's not something you do anymore because it's not there to hand. Whereas before, when you were buying a physical media, you had that secondary disc that had like the 90 minutes of director's footage or cut footage or, or like Blade Runner. How many versions of Blade Runner have there been? You know, the restored versions. I mean, to be fair, I didn't mind a blooper reel if that came separately <laughs> on a menu. But barring that, no, I wouldn't watch any director commentaries, that sort of thing. No, no. You know, I think what would be comparable for his generation in particular is the way that video games are marketed now where like you don't get the complete game anymore yeah you get like the base game and then you've got all that downloadable content for tokens or whatever the the shit is that you guys have to buy to get that (laughs) extra stuff you know so like catwoman can now wear like a pink suit or something i don't know i don't understand i haven't played a video game in so long but i think that's kind of the same thing it's like before you buy a game you got the game now you buy a game and you've just got the bones now you got to buy the meat. Now you got to buy the flesh. Now you got to buy the clothes and the hair and the skin. Yeah, it's it's. I'd say that's the comparable thing for that particular market in that generation. You know, what's interesting is not many games do it, but there are a number of games that do offer like a commentary mode. There will hmm. be like the the creators. There will be certain points of the game where you can click on an icon and it will tell you it would be like a director's commentary of the track or, or there will be games that include a blooper reel it's funny they're, they're trying to almost be like the the movies in that sense well i mean it's cool anything i enjoy i want a deeper insight on what got it into my machine like yeah. I, I really find something fascinating about that like i don't know anything about the making of video games i'm sure if i looked into it i would become addicted to wanting to know more about the content, you know, and the creative process behind it. But I'm already invested enough in movies and vinyl like you are, Dan. I can't add another (laughs) thing to my list. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. I have to push when when I become infatuated with one thing, the other thing has to be pushed out the door. So at the (laughs) moment, it's vinyl and that'll do me. That'll do me. I'm just keeping an eye on the time. So before we start thinking of wrapping up, is there anything around films, um, Louis? Is there anything that you kind of want to bring up? Well... Do you know what it was? Is again, just talking about film. And I I mentioned earlier about Schindler's List being like a masterpiece because I love that film and I think it's beautiful. I think it's just been so long since I've seen, and I don't know if this is because Marvel has kind of like cornered the market for what has been cinema seats and just anything that anybody's talked about for like the last 10 years. But I think it's been a really long time since I've sat down and thought, wow, that was a masterpiece of a film in terms of it was a blockbuster and it was beautifully made Mm. and it was good cinema. And I know that that's difficult because every person's definition is different, but I think that there are standard kind of um, preset rules as to what would make an amazing film. And that's the thing. I think we've talked about our love for Inception before. I was literally just thinking that. Is that, I love that film. A beautifully crafted film, when you look at it, I mean, I've always liked Guy Ritchie, they're not everybody's everybody's take, but from a story perspective, when you look at the likes of Snatch, Lockstock, yeah. even Gentleman, and even Layer Cake to an extent, whilst it was probably one of the less popular ones, I think even the story and the way that that's crafted is a beautiful thing. And so as a result, that style of film, I love. I just think it's been so long since I've seen that. Don't get me wrong, I love Marvel films, 
and I, love, and I love superhero films, but there's only so many times I can watch a light beam shoot into the sky <laughs> and someone in a really tight suit save the world. Do you know what I mean? It's for me, I, I, I would love to be able, and that's the thing for me, like I would rather go back and watch a Godfather film. I would rather go back and watch Schindler's you, List. You, you or want the a pianist, good storytelling. Or, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. And for me, I feel like that's really lacked. I think the last time I saw it, so I really like The Gentleman for Story, um, was Knives Out. Oh, a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a fantastic film. I really liked, um, was it Daniel Craig? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because he played someone completely different as well. But I thought it was brilliant story, brilliantly told with a little bit of comedy. It had a little bit of the suspense. It was absolutely brilliant as a film. And I feel like that to me was such a diamond in the rough for anything that I'd seen come out. Uh, that's what I kind of miss. And I feel like uh, it's terrible to say because I don't think that the quality of filmmaking is getting worse. I just feel like it's more difficult to find films that are just beautifully crafted mm-hmm. as opposed to anything else. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's strange. Antonio, what about, what about you? Is there anything or either on that or you kind of want to bring up before we, we look at wrapping up? Uh, you know, the the I've kind of gone off on like the industry of like how the the financial part of it and the the way success is measured just kind of destroyed the integrity of of what I think filmmaking is or should be, but that's just my opinion. You know, some of the things that I don't like, people probably think is what saves filmmaking, and that's what's so great about being a I can't say a professional movie watcher because I'm not, <laughs> but at least I have I know when I when I say something, I feel like I know what I'm talking about. And so, like, I, I generally think that the, the whole industry has become soft kind of the way we've become soft culturally and sociologically. And what I'm getting at is, you know, back when I was a kid, and even up until, like, I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the Academy Awards really meant something. Like the best picture, you only had five nominees. So those five nominees had better damn well be the best five pictures of that year. Now we have 10 and you've got these films that really just don't belong in the same category as each other. And it's kind of like what you and I talked about in the last episode that we were on, Dan, where it's like, you know, censorship then in the eighties, what was being censored now is considered soft. Mm. It's more like people care less about violence and, and sex in movies as much as they do diversity or social Mm. wokeness and awareness. So I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. What I'm saying is that like the desire to make something great isn't as important now as it used to be. Story doesn't really matter now. It's, It's it's how diverse is your cast? How diverse is your audience? How how many people can you affect with this film? And in terms of now, let's say gender classification and stuff like that. But here's a problem: it's not sincere. It's all yeah. marketing. Yeah. And we as a society are smart enough to realize that. But the ones that are suckered into it and use it as like their soapbox. Since they are the loudest voices, they're the ones that are going to get heard, and that's how they're going to start making decisions on how films are made and how TV shows are made and marketed. It's not sincere. Uh, uh. Yes, I want diversity. Yes, I want social awareness. But 
make it sincere. Don't make it this forced thing just to get more money because those of us who know what we're talking about and those of us who actually care about these messages are going to shit on you for being insincere. And then we are going to get shit on for shitting on you. Again, it's that <laughs> burrow burrow snake eating its own tail. That's been and a that thing. Is, that's been a thing. That's just, that's just humanity, <laughs> man. Like we can't be happy when things are just fine. Yeah. They either have to be really good or really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of like where I'm at on that whole thing. And that's the thing. It kind of leads into as well the kind of point about films now more so being about the marketing and how many people we can sell this to is about how good as opposed to how good the quality of the film that we're producing is basically. And yeah, that's, that's the big problem that I've had. And we talked about the MCU, do you know, Dan, when you said about it, it should, it felt like the natural end mm. was end game. Mm. When you look about every, every big film franchise or all of the big mainstream film franchises that we've seen, you look at potentially Pirates of the Caribbean. How many films did it go on too many for? Probably two yeah. mm -hmm. at a minimum. It should have finished after the third one. I really liked Transformers, right? But I used to play with the toys when I was young. You know, it's one of the, it's, stuff gets blown up in it. What can yeah. I say? But again, it went on for two films too many. I'm telling you now, people say that The Godfather was one film too many. If if it was made today, by today's standards, there would be Godfather 7 yeah. and then it would yeah. have died its yeah. death yeah. to me. That, that's, that's, that's the problem that I've seen. And then you mentioned Fast and Furious. What, are we on Fast and Furious 26? I don't know. I just know that when I have kids and my kids have kids, they're going to say, Grandad, do you want to go to the cinema? We've got Fast and Furious 96. Oh, uh, I remember when <laughs> yeah, nine came out. Yeah. The diesel's still in it. I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. What, do you know what I mean? It's just, it's it's being rinsed for everything that it's worth. And that's the problem that I've got. There's no satisfactory end to anything. And I want to ask the question, do you see that happening with Marvel? Just a slow f a putter to the end where it's the death. Not while, not while Disney has it, no. Disney has the money and the resources to reset something as much as it wants and lose as much money as it as they can to make it right. I mean, yeah. that why do we have three Spider-Mans right now? Like yeah, yeah. anything that Disney owns, they don't care if it fails because they have the endless resources to do it again and again yeah. and again. And I have this theory where they are letting Sony just eat shit <laughs> on all of these <laughs> Marvel franchises they have like Morbius and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Because they're playing the long game. They know they're going to get it eventually. Yeah. So yeah, let it fail. We'll take Morbius in 10 years and make a million versions of it and make money off all of them. And if we don't, yeah. we have endless resources. Again, it's that capitalistic idea where it's like, when money doesn't mean anything to you, you can let it fail and re rinse and repeat with Marvel and Star Wars and all that Disney stuff. That's where Disney is like, it's a very special kind of monster in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. My view on that is I don't think so in the short term either because the beauty about comics is there are so many, there's a whole history of storylines to pull from and the fans will go crazy if there's a particular storyline that's brought in. And I, I think for now, you could probably see an, a potentially another 10 years of it being quite successful. It's just whether, it's, I think it's what it does after that. It's got that investment from those first three phases. I think this next phase will do well. It's just, yeah, what's it going to do then? Where does it go next for me? I think a very interesting idea really fast is like that movie and book Ready Player One where oh, yeah, yeah. all these different intellectual properties are combined into one. Yeah, like yeah. 
I've got this sneaking suspicion. Let's say in 50 years, Disney literally owns everything. <laughs> so now you're going to have MCU in the Star Wars universe, in the Harry Potter universe, with a bunch of stuff from the 80s popping up. Then you'll have like, I don't know, the Wizard of Oz pop in there too, because they own everything. Like these, these universes are going to be so big in 50 years, it's all going to be Disney. And we're just going to live in this really weird universe of, of not remembering what the original origin was for these stories because it will only seem natural for Predator fighting Mickey Mouse in, I was say, in an MCU Mickey, movie. Did Mickey always <laughs> have a lightsaber? Did he always kill Darth Vader? <laughs> Amazing. For me, just to echo kind of what you both said, for me, it's just about wanting sincere films, films with, with a good story. I think... It's interesting what you said about Transformers, because I know they do get derided, but I think in the sense that I don't think there was enough focus on the Transformers, as it were. I think it just yeah. became a set-piece explosion franchise. Let's throw Megan Fox's abs in here. <laughs> that, that's Do you know what? Thing. I actually really, really like Bumblebee as, as a film. And I, again, I think that's... It wasn't made- bad. Yeah, and I think that's maybe because they focus a bit more on that character, Bumblebee. I think, yeah, yeah the Transformers just didn't there wasn't enough of of them as characters but yeah anyway before we do wrap up is there a heaven and hell for each of you so either a film you'd you'd watch for forever and a film you'd hate to have to watch forever oh i'll tell you what then i'll tell you what then we'll reframe that if you could pick three films that you could only watch from now to the end of your life and then three films that would be a hell if you could only watch them for the rest of your life (laughs) I could do it. Oh, I right, go for it! Wow, wow! There we go. Let's hear it. Okay, so if like for my heaven, I could watch Blade Runner. That's my favorite film of all time. I could watch that forever. I could watch. I'm gonna include all three Godfathers into one. So let's say the Godfather <laughs> saga. We'll allow, wanna, we'll allow it. I'm a Godfather three defender. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a bad film yeah. either. To be honest, yeah. it was on the other day, and I turned around and sat with my mum, and I was just like, I don't understand why this film gets so much stick. I just don't think it's warranted. Right. And then I could watch the Sergio Leone film Once Upon a Time in the West okay. for the rest of my life as well. So those are my three heaven films. I could easily watch all those all the time, and they're long. So like my heaven would be <laughs> nice and stretched out. I wouldn't have to like repeat them as many times. For my hell, um, I, I get some shit on this in my cult film communities because I, I really hate these films. <laughs> Number one on that list is Boondock Saints. That's the, my least favorite film of all time. That would be hell for me if I had to watch that for sure. Also on that list is Donnie Darko. I am not a Donnie Darko guy. I liked it at first and then I had second thoughts about it and definitely not on my list. <laughs> and then I would say the last film on that list is The Rock with Nicolas Cage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't mind that. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I, I like Michael Bay in certain doses, but that movie just <laughs> never did it for me. And I like to pretend that it doesn't exist. <laughs> wow, it's straight in there. Uh, Lou, what, what about you? Okay, I think Heaven. Sorry, I, I don't know if this is, I don't know how well received this Let's is going to be. Let's but I've mentioned Schindler's List. I'm going to say Schindler's List. I think it's my favorite film ever, just because I think it's just beautifully crafted. My second film, I'm going to have to put a Guy Ritchie film in there. <laughs> I feel like I'm going Snatch. Good choice. 
Yeah, I just feel like it has to be. I feel like that film you can watch over and over again and you'd laugh every time you watched it and you'd still love that every time you watched it. And oh, this is so left field. And my girlfriend, if she's listening to this, is going to turn around and be like, I knew he'd put this in there. The original Cars. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I love that film. I, 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 I love that film. I think it's brilliant. And in, in my mind, in my mind, it tops any of the other animated films i've i've made this case for ages cars is not only a great animated film it's also a good racing film <laughs> if you actually sit down and watch it it is it is it's brilliant michael schumacher's in it lewis hamilton was in some of the sequels absolutely brilliant i think for my hell um dan could you give me my first one? Oh, oh, oh my oh fast and furious no no bird box that one there. Um, what's the film? I think this is Nick Cage as well. The film where he opens the t- his um, kid at school opens the time capsule, and it's got all of the dates and all of the world-ending events happen. Oh, knowing, knowing, one hundred percent. That's not. Oh, that's don't not bother. Great. Oh, don't. Oh, yeah, I hate that film. And then I think it's also Nick Cage. I like Nick Cage. I like. <laughs> well, actually, no, that's a lie. I like National Treasure, and I like um, Gone in sixty seconds. Um, and then what's the one where is he, he the airline pilot and everyone goes missing? Oh, um, what's that one called? Oh, that, oh, oh God. God. Okay. I'm getting there. I'm getting there guys. Left behind. Is it left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Left behind. Yeah. Honestly, I couldn't genuinely, I couldn't think of anything worse and I don't even know what order I'd want to watch them in. Cause I feel like I just get progressively angrier <laughs> while having to watch them. But that was actually a <laughs> remake. That's like a really popular book series out here by Christian authors, and it was made in the early 2000s or late 90s with uh, Kirk Cameron from Growing Pains, oh, wow. you know, because yeah. he's super religious, <laughs> and then they remade it with Nicolas Cage. I'm like, what are y'all doing? But is it, isn't he, <laughs> is it Nick Cage playing Nick Cage in a film about Nick Cage? Yes, it's yeah. coming out soon, and I can't <laughs> wait to see it. That's the most Nick Cage thing, literally. Um, right, for me, I'll, I'll be quick on mine. My, my Heaven's Easy, um, Inception would have to be there because I, I tell yeah. everyone I really like that. I think it's a good film. It's a good plot. It's a good cast, and there's a mix of effects as well as it being a good story. Um, so Inception would be there. I might cheat for this second one because Antonio did. So I might wrap up the Godfather trilogy into one. If not, nice. I'd probably go for the. I probably w- I actually prefer the second, but I think I'll probably go for the first. Okay. And Lou, what you're saying, I was one of the people, I remember having seen the third one years ago and in my head always thinking it was never a good film. But then quite a few years back, I watched them all again and watched the third and thought, do you know what? It isn't a terrible film. I think it's just because it had um, Andy Garcia in it and it had uh, Coppola's daughter in it. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that they got a bit of stick for that. But it's not... (laughs) The acting was so rigid. But it's not a terrible (laughs) film. So anyway, number two would be that. And my third one, I love because I love these films, but it would probably have to be the first Rocky film. I love Rocky. Yeah. You I know? knew you were going to mention yeah. that because you put it out in your Ride or Die films when I was calling it out on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I oh, yeah, even I mentioned it in that episode. Yeah. I love the Rocky series. I think the first two are great, as in proper story of an underdog getting that shot. And it's just, it's got warmth to it. I think they humanize his character. I, yeah, yeah, I really like those. And even Balboa which was the sixth one, and the first yeah. Creed film. I think they're great. They're great. Yeah. I think the boxing is secondary to me in that. And um, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's, about the, it's about the human story. Hell, I'm going to find difficult because I, I, I can't really pick films that I've disliked. They would be 
involved you know like these spoof films that you get like that mm-hmm. spoof I, I i generally tend to dislike those i think they try too hard to be over the top funny spoof of a you know like you get the um the scream spoofs you get the, the scary movies yeah, yeah yeah those are kind of i'll watch for about five minutes and realize why i don't go out my way to watch them um <laughs> i think yeah the recent star wars sequels i had high hopes for it and then i kind of i'd watched the first one at the cinema and then yeah the star wars kind of doesn't exist for me anymore and yeah i, I don't know I, I think i might i think i'll probably leave it there i just i think our heavens have all been quite good there yeah i think yeah. that's fair do, do you know what it is is i think that i've picked mine based on emotion i think schindler's list would make me very very sad um and very emotional snatch would pick me up and then toy story and then toy story cars would give me that feel good factor again and then i could watch them on continuous repeat like that with that set i I was going to add lock stock into mine because i thought there's got to be a bit of humor but i i couldn't see which one of my three i'd nudge out knock out for it yeah Yeah. (laughs) so um oh come on the the emotion in Rocky, you, I, I defy you not to to sit there at the end and jump up <laughs> and number, you know, an arm in the air at the end of Rocky. <laughs> right, cool. Well, I think we've put the cinema world to rights here tonight, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, they're going to listen to us tomorrow and be like, "We got to change our ways." <laughs> <laughs> Antonio, do you want to give your your socials a plug while you're here? Yeah, I mean, you can listen to me on the same places you're listening to this show right now, pretty much anywhere out there. But I strongly suggest you follow Dan and Lou, as well as myself and our shows. You can find mine on Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under The Cult Worthy or The Cult Worthy Podcast. And then check out my website, thecultworthy.com, where I have all my latest reviews, blogs, movie news, and episodes but also links to all of my favorite indie podcaster friends, including Casting Views, on the Cult Worthy Partners page. So that's where you can find me and all my stuff and all my friends. Cheers, Antonio. And actually, going right back to the start, your show was the first one that we guested on or even had a guest, so that kind of paved the way for us as well, made, made us feel comfortable. So thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for having us first. And Lou, and I've, I've tweeted this out. Uh, Antonio has got the name and the voice to have a show, hasn't he? Like yeah, a, an entertainment yeah, yeah. show. I mean, the, the guy, yeah, the guy's yeah. made for this. The guy's made. <laughs> Lou, anything you want to say before we go? Should we end on something super controversial? Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, just to anybody listening, anybody that does love the Pixar films, I just want to tell you that if you think Monsters Inc. is the best one, you're wrong. If you think the Toy <laughs> Story is the best one, you're wrong. If you think Finding Nemo is the best one, you're wrong. Because Cars <laughs> is clear of all of them. Thank you. That will be my piece for the. Are rest you of kind the of saying like Cars <laughs> does for Cars what? Rocky did for boxing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cars, oh, yeah, yeah. Before before the film Cars, Cars weren't relevant, yeah. and that film made Cars relevant. Yeah, nobody yeah, liked yeah. Cars at all. <laughs> cool. If you, if you want to email us about anything you've heard tonight, or you just want to say hi, you can get us at castingviewspod at gmail.com. We're at castingviews on Twitter. We will play out with a trailer for the live stream for The Cure. Uh, which is happening very soon, I think, actually, after, after this episode. And we'll end with, we know there's a lot of podcasts from which you can choose, so we thank you for listening to Casting Views. What does hope mean to you? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I am the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity live stream event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute. 
which researches immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. Their mission, one that I believe in very, very strongly, is a future immune to cancer. And this year, for the sixth annual live stream for The Cure, I want to emphasize more than anything, hope. Over the past five years, myself and amazing creators and partners from around the world have raised over $50,000 for this amazing cause. And this year, we're looking to add another $20,000 to that total. Please join me May 19th, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern for 45 hours of content over the next three days, as I'm once again joined by amazing creators from around the world to help fight for hope. Learn more or make an early donation today at livestreamforthecure.com.